0: no one at Bridgewater was allowed to speak to the press about Bridgewater or its clients or the global or domestic economy. At that time, I had signed the deal to write the MBA oath book. And then within the first week of me being there, this issue is being brought to the founder, Ray Dalio, about can I publish this book about business ethics? And he said, look, if I have to make an exception for every person, I'm gonna spend all my time doing that as opposed to doing the work. And I'm like, well, where does that leave me? And he said, well, you're gonna to have to choose. Do you wanna write the book or do you want to work here?
1: From Mundy, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong, and my guest on this episode is Max Anderson. Now, I cannot wait to get into the story because Max is someone who really thought through how to integrate his faith into his education and career. He's a co-founder and managing partner of Saturn Five, a venture fund based in Denver, Colorado. But he's done a handful of things beyond launching and growing small businesses, Max is the Harvard grad who started the MBA oath after the 2008 financial crisis. And at one point, he left a job at McKinsey to work full time at Tim Keller's Redeemer Church in New York City. We'll dive more into all those things in this interview. But one of the first questions I asked Max was about his unique and unexpected career journey so far. You've done a lot of interesting things in your career to get to this point. Now you're in your early 40s. Was this what you thought your career would look like?
0: (laughs) No, (laughs) that's an easy one. I always thought like a good title for a book about like life after college for the first 10, 15 years should be the wander years, (laughs) because at least for me, there was a lot of wandering. I worked in ministry. I worked on Wall Street I went back and forth between the two. And at times, I feel like I wish that I had had a clear point-to-point journey, but it didn't seem to be the path that God had given me. I had a variety of interests. There was not just the one thing I felt like I had to do vocationally. There were several things I wanted to do. So I have a number of people in my family who were small business owners, and so I thought about entrepreneurship as a path. I thought about becoming a pastor because I was like speaking and teaching. And then I thought about being a talk show host, which sounds crazy, but that is a wonderful thing to do is talk to interesting people and hear their stories and share a laugh and maybe something meaningful.
1: Does any of what Max just shared resonate with you? Do you feel like you're a jack of all trades, but master of none or split between interests? Max was the type of guy who is kind of good at everything. He grew up in Colorado and was well-liked in high school. He was student body president, prom king, and describes himself as a type A first child who was pretty motivated and self-regulated. So when college applications came around, Max tested well and was accepted into an Ivy League school.
0: It was a little bit shocking to me and to my family about, oh, I have a chance to go to a school like Princeton. I remember my grandmother saying she would be praying for me because she was concerned that I would lose my faith by going to a school like that because it was so outside the experience of my family.
1: What about your faith? Were you someone who was like really involved at church or come to faith early?
0: Yeah, I did come to faith early. I remember when I was three or four years old praying with my mom in the backseat of the car praying for forgiveness and that I wanted to follow Jesus. I did not have a lot of close friends at church growing up, but I did have experiences at camp that were really meaningful for me uh, about learning who God is and who I am. But going to the East Coast and the Ivy League felt like a, a bit of an intimidating experience for all of us. But made the decision, partly because of a great financial aid offer that that we received. And also because it felt like, hey, this is an opportunity that we shouldn't pass up. Less for any one particular career and more because of who knows what doors it would open.
1: So what about your major? Did you have any idea of what you would want to major out of all those three interesting career ambitions you had?
0: You know, Princeton doesn't have a lot of pre-professional majors. There's not like a business degree. So I majored in history part of this because my dad majored in history. And I thought that's what some people do or what my kind of people do. And, uh, you know, I like to joke that history is a growing field.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So at Princeton, you did history. And after that, it really seemed like it was very easy for you to find your first job out of university at one of the best companies. Can you tell us what that was like?
0: Well, I didn't know what management consulting was or what McKinsey was till my senior year, like totally off the radar for me. I went to a presentation. They would come on campus and made a presentation to students and gave this really compelling pitch that every year we are ranked the number one choice for business school graduates for where they want to work. We're going to give you amazing training as a business generalist that you are going to be able to use in any number of ways. And so that's what I did. I thought this is kind of like a business education, but one that they pay you for. So that seemed like a good idea to me. My first job, I want to build skills and abilities and experiences that I can apply broadly, partly because I didn't really know what I wanted to do.
1: In one way, Max was like a lot of college grads who don't know what they want to do after school. But in another way, he was not like most college grads because he wasn't interested in making as much money as possible. Although his grandmother feared that Max would lose his faith at Princeton, he actually got involved in a Christian campus ministry that grew his desire to become a pastor. So after college, Max actually deferred a job from McKinsey to stay at Princeton and work with that college ministry for a year. Then in 2002, he joined McKinsey right in the middle of a recession, and that had a huge impact on his experience there.
0: They hired a lot fewer people. The class that I should have been a part of, there was probably like 40 kids my age in the New York office where I was. And then the class that I eventually joined because I deferred, there was only like eight of us. When I got there, within the first three months, I think they fired 30 percent of the associates in the office. And I remember I talked to an associate, hey, what's your experience like describing one word? And she said, fear. And I was like, oh, goodness, this, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and my first project was working for a large publisher of newspapers around the country. We were trying to save them money on their supplies, so the ink, the paper, the rubber bands, the plastic bags, the newspapers. And that kind of study is not that interesting, like I got sold on this idea, hey, you're gonna come up with these great growth strategies for these companies as we really creative and fun. This was more, you kind of knew the answer on day one, which is instead of each newspaper buying their own supplies, buy it jointly and negotiate group discounts. And then the rest of the project is just tallying up how much can we save on staples? How much can we save on these different things? It was stressful because there wasn't enough work for everybody and people were feeling fearful. And then it was kind of a not very interesting project. And then I wasn't even good at it. One of my jobs was to collect data, collect the information. And we'd have these newspapers send us, how much do you spend on these things? And give us the reports and I'll keep them so the team can analyze them. Well, there was one newspaper and we needed to get the information for them. And they said they had sent it and we couldn't find the information. This is back when like people were still mailing hard copies of things. It was my job to keep track of it and we couldn't find it, we couldn't find it. The big partner on the study said, nobody does anything until we find this information. So like we had 12 people stop their work. I can't imagine how much this cost for like three hours. And then we found it in the back of the file cabinet, right? It was like a big thing. And the partner said, I wanna see you in my office tonight at six o'clock. And I'm like, oh gosh. I called my dad and I, I said, what do you, what should I do? I might lose my job. I don't know what's going to happen. And he said, well, did you lose the the thing? I said, well, we found it. He's like, I don't think you're going to lose your job over that, but he may want to give you a stern talking to. Him. And I said, well, what should I say? He said, you ought to listen to him. You shouldn't make any excuses. You should take responsibility and say it'll never happen again. And then you should ask him, has he ever been in a situation like this? And what advice does he have? Because. If he says he hasn't, then you know he's lying because everybody's screwed up and been in situations like that. And if he admits it, then you might find some common ground. So I go into this guy's office, six o'clock at night, trembling. And he says, son, do you care about what we do here? I mean, how do you answer that? Yes, of course I do. He said, I want you to know what we're doing is we're going into battle every day. And if we're going into battle and we don't have the supplies we need, that means the enemy shoots us. Does that make sense? And I'm like, uh, yes, I'm not really following. But he said, if the enemy shoots us, that means we lose this project. If we lose this project, we might lose this client. And if we lose this client, I may lose my job. And If I lose my job, my kids don't eat. Are you following me? And I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm I'm starving his children. And so it was like a heavy, heavy guilt trip. And I just take responsibility. This will never happen again. This is on me. No excuses. And then I asked him, I was like, I got to ask, have you ever been in a situation like the one I'm in right now? And he paused and he's like, oh yeah, totally. Let me tell you about it. And it totally changed the nature of the conversation. And it was like my first experience of the work world where we appreciate mercy and grace in the church and it's not always there in the, in the world. And, but we have to, we have to work among it.
1: Yeah. And so going back to his questions about, do you believe in what McKinsey was doing? Did you see yourself being at McKinsey for a while? What happened during your time at McKinsey?
0: So my job at McKinsey was structured as a two-year experience. And then most people leave to either go to graduate school or go to a private equity firm or or do something like that. And I'm pretty sure I was the only person from my McKinsey class who went to work at a church after the two years.
1: But this wasn't just any church or assignment Max was getting into. It was an urban church planning program with Tim Keller's Redeemer, one of the most well-known churches in America. Max felt doing this work would help him decide if he really wanted to become a pastor. At the same time, he also got married to Jessica. They had met at Princeton and were both involved with Campus Crusade.
0: We got married in 2004. So right when I finished working at McKinsey, we left for our honeymoon, came back and began working at a totally different place. It was my first week working at Redeemer and they had done a congregational survey They'd asked maybe 40 questions in the survey about the congregation. And I said, oh, that's interesting. How does it differ for like young men and young women as a contrast? And they're like, well, we'd have to run a query on that. That might take half a day. And I thought, what? Couldn't you just dump the information into a pivot table in Excel? And they said, what's a pivot table? And I said, my McKinsey training may be paying off. (laughs) And I was very quickly able to like show a, a bunch of insights about the data that they just didn't have before. I was like, that's pretty cool that McKinsey could help me have this kind of impact really quickly at the church. But I found myself drawn more and more during that time to leadership and management issues in the church. So I did go through the process of applying to seminaries. And was accepted to a couple. My wife and I had gone and looked at a school outside of Boston and it was good, but I just didn't feel like this is where I need to be.
1: And while Max wasn't fully sure he'd want to jump into full-time seminary, his wife had an inkling of where he should be on a stroll around Harvard University.
0: And I remember she and I got done and then drove down to Cambridge and got some ice cream and walked around Harvard Square and then went over to the business school campus and we sat outside the tennis courts and eating our ice cream and talking and she got quiet and I looked over and she had tears coming down her face. And I said, what's wrong, sweetie? And she said, I just have this weird, strong feeling that I could see you here and happy in a way that I just can't at seminary she voiced a feeling that i had inside but hadn't really allowed myself to completely articulate uh, or didn't know how to articulate we drove back to new york that night and talked all the way home and basically the next day i withdrew my application to seminary and agreed to stay another year at redeemer working with them on a capital fundraising campaign but while at the same time applying to business school Although I love teaching and speaking and, and that idea about being a pastor, I didn't have the interest to go spend four years learning languages.
1: That's so interesting how your wife was able to give you that insight to not spend four years in seminary school and instead to take a different path.
0: Yeah, so this is the same girl who is totally comfortable with me leaving McKinsey to go work at the church. And then a couple of years later saying, actually, I think you might go back into the quote secular world or whatever. And so she's special, she's a great partner. You know, while I was even in New York, we were looking at the idea of starting a coffee shop and making a, like a jobs program in uptown and she, Saw me light up when I talked about that and get really excited about that in a way that I just didn't when I talked to her about doing seminary. And so I think it was her a little bit mirroring back to me what she saw that animated me. Someone told me, like, if you don't know what you want to do with your life, there's some tests you can do. One test is the bookstore test. Like, where do you naturally gravitate to in the bookstore when you don't have to be there? What sections that may or may not be indicative? Or the shower test. When you're in the shower or you're driving or wherever, you don't have something else to occupy your mind. Where does your mind naturally go to when you're not in stress, but you're at peace? What are you drawn to? For me, I kept being drawn to these business ideas and new ventures.
1: And so after another year at Redeemer, Max became a student at Harvard, the same place where his wife Jessica had cried into her ice cream. Max enrolled in both the Kennedy School of Government and the business school's MBA program, doing well in both. He participated in speaking engagements and was even voted best public speaker. But when it was time for him to graduate and search for his next career opportunity, things weren't looking so good, mainly because it was right in the middle of the 2008 global financial crisis. When
0: a crisis happened, like Harvard and MBAs were like some of the villains, at least in the narrative of the media. So it's like, man, you spent all this money, worked so hard to get into the school. And it's like, oh, now everyone thinks like you're the worst.
1: And you can't get a job because, yeah, it's just tough. No one could get a job.
0: No one could get a job, you know, and it was harder than I had hoped it would be. So I had spent the summer in between first and second year business school. I interned at Google. I had a great experience and thought this is what I want to do. At the end of the summer, I was told I was one of their top MBA interns, but we, we're we not giving any offers right now because of the economy. We don't know what's going to pan out. So we're going to wait till September. Okay, that's great. September comes like, you know what? We're still going to wait till November. And then November comes and said, you know, we put a company wide freeze on hiring for six months. And I'm like, they may have liked me. They may not have. I don't know, but they're definitely not hiring, making me an offer right now. I better come up with plan B. And there weren't a lot of plan base that were hiring. Facebook was recruiting and I tried to interview there. I didn't get a job there. I mean, I turned over a lot of stones. I talked to the FBI. They were recruiting. That didn't go anywhere.
1: So Max was running into a lot of dead ends, but he was on the verge of a unique idea that would become wildly popular and earn press coverage on CNN, NPR, and in the New York Times. Coming up, you'll hear about what Max did and then what happened when he finally got a job at a hedge fund. Hey guys, it's me, Grace. I wanted to take this break to see if you'd like to buy me a coffee. It's been amazing working on this podcast from coffee shops, from my makeshift home studio, and with a team from all around the world. This passion project started two years ago when I felt it would be great to get some content out there that can get people of the Christian faith through storytelling to give us some career perspective and industry insight. I've learned a lot myself and I hope you have too. If you have any feedback or ideas on how we could do things better, please feel free to reach out to us. And if you're in a position to treat someone, please check out how you can buy me a coffee to support Faith Collide's podcast. You can get the link from our show notes. Otherwise, we hope you can keep listening and be blessed. Welcome back. So it's 2008 and Max Anderson is about to graduate from Harvard Business School in the year that marked its 100th anniversary. Which if you didn't know, HBS was started in 1907 in the wake of the panic when bank runs brought the financial system to a standstill. And HBS opened up its doors to train the next generation of business and financial leaders. So in the middle of the financial crisis unfolding before him, Max thought long and hard about what a business degree meant for him and his peers.
0: I just did what I think a lot of people were doing, saying, "Like gosh, what does it mean to be graduating from this place in this year? This is time for us to think about what this all means." I had this idea of what if we challenged our class to make some sort of a statement about the ways that we wanted to lead and conduct ourselves and our careers. And so I got together with some friends and said, what if we make a little statement, sign it and challenge our classmates to sign it. And we wrote up something and someone said, you know, you really ought to talk to these two professors, Nitin Noria and Rakesh Karana, who have both been working on this idea of a Hippocratic Oath for managers. I was like, that sounds pretty interesting. We talked to them and we'd show them what we had already come up with. And they're like, this is great. If you could get a hundred of your classmates to sign this, we'll take out a full page ad in the Boston Globe. And we're like, well, that's pretty motivating. That's, that'd be cool. And so we started sharing it with our classmates and people started signing it. We put a little website online and we went beyond 100 the first day and we you know, got to several hundred and there's 900 kids in our class and we got past half of them signing it. Somebody posted the idea of what was happening on Nicholas Kristof's Facebook page, uh, the New York Times columnist. And he shared about, he's like, this. look what's going on at Harvard. And like within like three or four hours, he had like 200 comments from people. Some saying this is exactly what we need. Other people saying, I don't trust MBAs farther than I can throw them. And totally skeptical. But it was, you know, good conversation. And, you know, I remember I was making a grilled cheese sandwich for lunch. I got a phone call from this reporter saying that she worked for the New York Times. And could she interview me about this MBA oath that we had started? And i said sure and and they sent up a photographer and they wrote this piece and it became the second most widely read article that weekend in the new york times behind this diet article which is also very interesting (laughs) and so it was just this thing just kind of took off from underneath us and we started getting people reaching out to us from other business schools saying this is really cool can we adopt this at our school too and we said sure Dozens and, and dozens of schools reached out and soon it became hundreds and it was a beautiful moment where we had thousands of these MBAs who are graduating saying, I want to make a public statement about that I want to lead ethically and in the interest of not just myself but of others and, and the stakeholders that I'm working with. and A publisher called and said, we'd love you to do a book on this idea. There was no master plan. There was no like 10-year vision. It just happened. That was a momentous thing that I couldn't have predicted even six months earlier. And, you know, it was pretty life-changing for me.
1: While Max started this accidental movement with the MBA Oath, he also landed an incredible job at Bridgewater Associates, run by well-known investor and businessman Ray Dalio. It's one of, if not the largest hedge funds in the world with a very interesting way of doing things.
0: Turns out they had this crazy culture, which I found totally intriguing. Went through this bizarre interview process where they like spent hours asking me about what values my parents taught me. Hours debating with other applicants about things totally unrelated to finance. Should there be gifted and talented programs in the United States? Or should people be allowed to sell their kidneys? It was a time where literally it was hard to get a job. Here I had this offer from this crazy place that was very generous. And I said, geez, let's give it a go.
1: What type of role did you get?
0: It was basically a general management role. They said, hey, people who are going to be great investors for us aren't necessarily great managers and leaders. But we have a big company and we need people to manage the company excellently. And so we wanna get like people who care about that and love building organizations. So my first role there was managing a team that kind of arranged and set up this, these separately managed accounts for some of the largest investors who didn't wanna invest directly in the fund, but needed to hold different assets.
1: Was this a company that kind of challenged you in your faith, challenged you in the MBA oath at all?
0: Yes, in many ways. Bridgewater would pride itself on the idea of challenging people and challenging each other. Bridgewater, even versus other firms of its type, I think is unusual in the way that they they do their business. When I first got there, literally my very first day, my first challenge came up where we had the chief compliance officer give us you know, a talk about Bridgewater's policies, including this communications policy that no one at Bridgewater was allowed to speak to the press about Bridgewater or its clients or the investment management business or the global or domestic economy. And I'm like, Okay, that's fair, pretty broad. But at that time, I had signed the deal to write the MBA oath book and was 75% of the way through that. And so I said, hey, I don't think this counts in, in terms of what you guys would be concerned about, but I want to make sure that it's all kosher. And she said, oh, gosh, I don't know. We'll have to talk to Ray about it. Here I am like low man on the totem pole. And then within the first week of me being there, this issue is being brought to the founder, Ray Dalio, and and the executive committee about, can I publish this book about business ethics? You know, went and met with them. And he said, look, I love what you're doing. And you seem like a, a great person. So it's not about any of that. It's just that if I have to, we have a lot of people who are interested in a lot of things here. If I have to make an exception for every person and consider every case, I'm going to spend all my time like doing that as opposed to doing the work. So it's easier for me just to have a blanket policy, just, no, you can't do it. And I'm like, well, where does that leave me? Because I've already committed to the book. And he said, well, you're going to have to choose. Do you want to write the book or do you want to work here? You know, keep in mind, this is 2009, hard to get a job anywhere. I've failed at getting a job at other places, but I got this one and I have a lot of grad school debt. Just signed a lease for an apartment in New York City and I have a little baby girl. So on the one hand, I have this opportunity to publish a book, which sounds so awesome about this thing that I started and and feel very passionate about. And on the other hand, here's this great paying job and my family. We need an income and I don't know what else to do. And so what do I do? It was a difficult moment. What happened was I dragged the process out over months and at night would talk to my wife for two or three hours. What should we do? What should we do? And say like, okay, I think we should quit. And then drive in in the morning, kind of lose my nerve and not do it. It was miserable. I just felt so stressed because there were these two things that I really wanted or felt like I needed. And I couldn't have both. I really had to choose. That's actually something that Ray is famous for his book on his principles. And and one of his principles is like, you can have anything you want, literally anything, but you can't have everything. So you have to choose what matters to you. And on the one hand, that's like an inspiring message because he's like, no, you can really kind of go do anything you want to do, like anything. But there's going to be trade offs, And that's the reality.
1: What Max ended up doing was asking one of his friends, Peter Escher, to help co-author the book. Peter had been involved in getting the NBA Oath Initiative off the ground and Ray Dalio was okay with Peter doing the book tours and interviews as long as Max wasn't getting the media attention. Today, Max sometimes still wonders if he made the right choice, but realizes that in the grand scheme of things and because of where his faith lies, it's not worth worrying about. You didn't have the fame, you didn't have the glory, you didn't have the chance to be on those talk shows, but you did have the income that you needed for your family. That is really part of growing up.
0: It is part of growing up, but you can tie yourself into knots. You know, you say like, well, am I selling out? Heck, I'm staying to work at a hedge fund. I mean, I think that's a good question to ask. I think that's a fair question to ask yourself. I think you can also like beat yourself up on something like that and be too idealistic about like the path because if I chose the other and couldn't pay our rent and our debts, like is that really a good choice for my family? And so I think those types of questions like force a, force you to mature in different ways. You know, maybe I made the wrong choice or maybe I didn't I think that one of the things that I've come to believe over the years is that I would tend to approach decisions in life and career as if there's like a right answer. And the longer I've lived, I believe the truth is that God doesn't necessarily have for each of us at each decision point, the thing that he wants you to do. He does want me to be faithful. He does want me to be in relationship with him, but I don't think he cares that much, honestly, about whether I go to business school or to seminary, or whether I publish a book or work at this investment firm. Those things matter to me quite a bit, and they may have impact on the world in different ways, but it doesn't impact what he thinks about me or how he loves me.
1: With that mindset, Max stayed at Bridgewater for five years, until he decided he needed to quit without a backup plan. He wandered a bit more in his career and eventually he got involved with Praxis, an accelerator for startups who are motivated by their faith. Then Max started The Weekend Reader, a newsletter that we'll get into a bit later. And Max eventually launched Saturn Five, a venture fund with business partner, Evan Loomis. The idea was to raise some money and launch new companies. Just maybe not the type of companies you typically think about throwing a lot of money into.
0: We have this eclectic and beautiful portfolio of, on the one hand, companies that are 3D printing houses and virtual reality hardware. So very high tech. On the other hand, we have these very main street blue collar businesses that are excavating basements and installing landscaping and managing properties and and things like that. And I love the mix.
1: Yeah. And and it's very interesting how your portfolio is in the range of like building materials, whether it be high tech or the traditional concrete pavements, things like that. So how did you stumble upon this industry or this field?
0: On a macro level, there's going to be millions of businesses owned by baby boomers that are retiring now and have been and will be for the next several years there's gonna be a huge transfer of wealth and businesses. And it's like a big society shift that people aren't really talking about as much. What's interesting about it is these companies that have, you know, less than 100 employees, may have EBITDA of, you know, 5 million or less, can be bought for four or five times their earnings, which is very, very cheap when the average private equity deal in the United States is for about 12 times trailing earnings. And so the reason why is these companies are hard to find. You can't put a lot of money to work into them. And so there's fewer buyers. And as a result, you can get uh, better prices and therefore better returns than without even having to grow that much.
1: So many people are putting money in tech stuff cryptocurrency these type of stuff and no one's thinking about putting it in like you said that your office is down in a yard that sells dirt
0: yes i literally my office is in a, a yard that sells dirt and rocks and it is it, there's nothing sexy about it they're boring that's like one of our criteria if it ain't boring it's probably not for us which doesn't make me very fun at a dinner party but with covid they haven't been any dinner, dinner parties anyway so it's not been that big an issue
1: <laughs> So although Max isn't investing in and growing companies in a glamorous industry, he seems to finally be doing something he's passionate about. He likes what he's doing. And although it's a far cry from Wall Street, it's where Max wants to be.
0: When I was at Bridgewater, not everybody knew what it was. But those who knew like, oh, Bridgewater, it's the biggest yeah. investment firm in the world. But I didn't really like talking about it. I just didn't care that much. I wasn't passionate about it. I'd talk about the culture and how crazy that was, but not but the work itself. Now, like, I would love to talk to you about how to crush concrete into gravel and, the you know, how we deliver it and all our issues. And the problem is you don't want to hear about it, but that's OK because uh, I'm enjoying it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Is there any encouragement to our listeners who may have wanted to do something growing up or had a view of what they do or they, you know, they had multiple ideas of what they would do? and now feel like that's not what they are doing or should be doing anymore.
0: I like to say it's never too late to make a good decision. Let me speak to a particular kind of person that might be listening. Someone maybe kind of like me. I had the privilege of getting to go to some great schools that opened a lot of doors. And the good thing about open doors is those are opportunities. The tough thing is if you don't actually know where you wanna go, It's not necessarily helpful to just have more doors open because you still have to walk through one of them. We can't walk through all of them. What can happen, I think, is to some people who go to business schools or to elite schools, they get offered opportunities that, quote unquote, people would kill for. If you're kind of ambitious but undirected, you could just kind of say, okay, that sounds good, which I think is partly my story, and wind up in a place where you didn't really intend to be accidentally. The thing is, that those that the kind of places you might end up might be lucrative, it might be prestigious, it might have reasons that are really externalizations of why you should stay there versus an inherent internal happiness and desire. And I think when you discover you're in that kind of place and there's something else that's calling to you that your mind is drifting towards in the shower or at the bookstore, or when you're sitting on a park bench with your wife, it's important to listen to that. My own experience has been when I've hopped off the track that I was on. That has always been scary, but it has also been rewarding which is not to say that people shouldn't follow like well-beaten paths or work at big companies or prestigious companies. If that is what you is right for you and God's calling you to, that's great. But for the person who's maybe in a place like you're saying who maybe wanted to do something else but doesn't know, my encouragement is to try. Take the leap.
1: So while Max Anderson's career journey wasn't what he thought it will be, it doesn't seem like he has any regrets. And it's definitely produced some fun stories and important lessons learned. If you want to hear more from Max, you might want to sign up for The Weekend Reader. It's a newsletter that he curates.
0: I started a weekly email where I recommended five articles on one topic each week, with the idea being that, like, if you read one article, you probably don't are not going to remember what it said, unless it was a, a great article. You might skim it, da, da, da. but if you read five articles on a topic from different sources, You can really begin to get your own perspective on something and develop your own opinion on it.
1: Honestly, that seems very much needed today in America right now.
0: My catch line is read widely, read wisely. It's been a way to address culture. Sometimes I'll bring my faith into it and sometimes I won't about issues like everything from what's the future of retail to when the George Floyd protests were happening like Black Lives Matter and what do these conservative sources say about this? What do these progressive sources say? What do these uh, middle-of-the-road sources say? So that has been a fun outlet for me and my little attempt to contribute to a better dialogue in our country.
1: You can check out Max's website, maxwell.com. That's M-A-X-W-E-L-L-A dot com. I hope the story and what this podcast is about will encourage you in some way, whether it'll be to take that leap of faith in a career decision, or to simply remember that at the end of the day, God loves you no matter what decision you make. I'm Grace Huang, bringing you stories that can revive your work week. Hope you have a blessed day. If you like what you're hearing, Please subscribe to get future episodes and support us with a review. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is co-produced and edited by Josh Batson. Audio mixing by Josh Batson and Joshua Huang.